Amen. They like today maybe is the appropriate day to reflect on a weeping Savior. We are in John chapter 11, verses 27 to 37. Jesus has arrived in Bethany, where Lazarus has passed away. And he meets up with the family. We pick up in verse, I'm going to start in verse 27 and read through 37. Hear then the word of God. It says that she said to him, that is Martha, said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Jesus has not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said to him, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could he not open the eyes of the blind man? Could he not also have kept this man? from dying. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to you. Oh, as we read these words, as we open this text, we see, uh, we see you like we see you nowhere else. Uh, would you open our hearts and open our minds to understand you and to know you and so to love you and to worship you as we ought. We pray that you would move into our lives and speak to our lives with power that we might be changed. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you feel the juxtaposition if, uh, if you understand this whole context of Jesus showing up in Bethany for the whole purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. And the power of this juxtaposition between a Jesus who stands here weeping And the Jesus who raises a man from the dead. This crying Jesus and this raising Jesus. If you're reading straight through John's gospel, you would move from his claim a few verses ago that he is the resurrection and the life to this encounter with Mary where he is moved and weeping to the next scene where he stands in front of Lazarus' tomb and commands him to come forward. To come out. Here we get a glimpse of the full range of our Savior's glory. It's the full range of His glory. As we see the full range of His person as He knows and loves His people and interacts with them. He is fully God as He is the resurrection and the life and He speaks life to the dead. And yet He is fully man as He stands with a grieving family and weeps with them. John has showed us, shown us throughout this gospel, a Jesus who claims all the prerogatives of God for himself, 
a Jesus who will forgive sins. Sin is an offense against God. And so therefore only God can forgive offenses against him. So he forgives sins, which is God's prerogatives. He says that he is the bread and the water of life and that those who will feast on him will experience life, spiritual life, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He is the light of the world. Like the sun illumines this world, so he shines the light of God's moral glory and God's truth. He heals the lame. He heals the sick. Like the, crea- like the creator, he strides on the water, demonstrating his lordship over all that is made. He is the resurrection and the life. In his word, the dead will live. What do you think about a crying Jesus? What do you think about a Jesus after all of these things as John presents him to us and John wants us to see him in all of his glory? He wants us to know who he is as as Martha confesses him. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's coming into the world. And this crying Jesus, does he embarrass us? You know, is it, too, is it too much? Is it too discordant with this picture of him who is, as we see him? And I think this is a struggle that the church has had throughout our history as we have wrestled with the identity of Jesus and as we have come to know him as God incarnate and to embrace him that way, which is no small thing to come to faith in this man as, as the almighty incarnate come to save God, saving us and at the same time, to take him seriously as a human being, as a man. When these salty human tears run down his face, we get a glimpse of the love of God in its fullness. Right? Martha makes this grand confession of faith that rivals Peter's. You know, remember Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And here Martha makes a very similar confession. I believe, I I know, and I believe that you are the Christ. And then Jesus tells her to go and get her sister. So Martha, in verse 28, goes to call her sister, delivers Jesus's message, goes to Mary quietly and privately, and says, the master is calling for you. The master wants to see you. And so Mary goes to him. Now this is the Mary. Whenever I think of Mary, I envision her, I think as we perhaps should, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Right? This is the Mary and Martha who uh, had Jesus in their house and were entertaining him. And Martha is very busy and Jesus is sit- uh, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Right? This is the, the Mary who sat, taking in every word of Jesus. That even under the rebuke of her sister, Jesus defends her and says this will not be taken away from her. Right? She has chosen the better thing. She has chosen the right thing. Right? She is attentive to the words of Christ. And so this call comes to her, this invitation. He calls her aside from the crowd. It's a very personal and very gracious call. Martha sends her to get Mary. The master wants to see you. In this moment of your grief, in this moment of your confusion, in this moment of your pain, Jesus wants to talk to you. Jesus wants an audience with you. So Mary, you know, we see Mary's heart in all of this. You know, as much as she is struggling with the loss of her brother, as much as she is 
in pain and weeping and in this crowd of mourners that are with her and as she wrestles with this as much as she hurts. When she hears the call of Jesus, she runs, right? She quickly gets up. She heads to where Jesus is. She goes to him. She doesn't hesitate. And a lot of us, and, and this is one of those things, when we're in pain and we're with grief, you see people often withdraw and pull away. They can pull away from Christian friends. They can pull away from the church. And sometimes they pull away from God. Because pain, people do funny things when they're in pain. They say funny things. They wrestle with funny things. Doubt and, and fears and all kinds of things that come in when we're in pain. We tend often to draw away and not to draw near. But here is Mary in her heart and as deeply as she's feeling this pain. When Jesus calls her, she doesn't, she doesn't refuse to come. She doesn't run away. Whatever else she's feeling and however she is wrestling, she comes and is quick to respond. And I wondered as I read this, how quick am I to respond to Jesus' call when I know that he is calling, when I know that he is speaking into my life, when I know that he is saying something. How quick am I to respond? How quick am I to come to his feet? To hear his words again. To do as he bids. Are we attuned to his voice? Are we obedient to his call? She runs and takes her place once again. And collapses there at his feet. And she comes and says. She falls on the ground and says Lord. And expresses her pain. Expresses her confusion. Yes she calls him Lord. If you had been here my brother would not have died. But I want us to notice that this invitation to Mary was private. That Martha had come to her and had said to her in private, the master's calling you, and then she gets up and runs out. The crowd, who was there grieving with her, sees her get up and run out. And they think she's going to the tomb. They think she's going to go and move her grieving from the house to the graveside. And so they get up to follow her, to go comfort her, to go be with her as she grieves. And they become witness. To the encounter with Jesus and to the raising of Lazarus from the dead, all that follows in this encounter. And so Mary comes in verse 33, we see as she runs to Jesus and she falls at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews would come also weeping, he's deeply moved. She's at Jesus' feet and we, we can tell that what she says when she says, Lord, if you had only been here my brother would not have died. She says it through tears. You have, to see, you have to see Mary on her knees in front of Jesus, weeping, saying, Lord, if he had been here. Right? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her. You know, in the, in the word that is used here for weeping, the, for both the crowd that is with her, in verse 33, when she saw her weeping and the Jews who were with her were also Weeping, there is a very specific word, just like in our language, there are different words for the way that we cry. Sometimes you cry, uh, you weep, you shed tears, you mourn, but sometimes you sob, sometimes you wail, sometimes there, there are stronger words. The word that's used here for Mary and for the crowd is a very strong word. What's going on is loud. It's not contained. It's sobbing. It's sobbing and it's, and it's noisy what's going on. There is there's, there's, this grieving that is taking place at Jesus' feet. So you can imagine Jesus standing there. Mary clinging to his feet. 
crying with the crowd that has followed her, crying and weeping loudly. And, and Mary saying, Lord, if you'd only been here. Jesus stands there taking it in. And we're told that he's deeply moved, right? Verse 33, when he saw her weeping, he saw the Jews who had come with her weeping. It says he's deeply moved in his spirit and he's greatly troubled. It's interesting, this translation right here is a bit difficult. When it says that he's deeply moved in his spirit, that's a bit tricky. That, that's not exactly what it says. And I looked at a bunch of translations to see how different ones translate it and how they get it. And really the one that comes closest, I think, to being literal is the New Living Translation. Go figure. The New Living Translation comes very close. And it says, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled or he troubled himself. Which is very... It, it was a little bit stronger than simply he was deeply moved. You know, and so there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, debate about what is meant by attributing that to Jesus at this moment, this idea that he was angry. The word moved here, deeply moved here, literally means to snort like a horse. Right? So can you imagine a horse snorting? And the idea behind it is this idea of indignation. When does somebody snort? And yes, we do occasionally snort, right? It's usually an indignation. Or anger, <laughs> you know, like, in, in the word, this word that is used to describe Jesus at this moment is only used like three other times in the New Testament, and every single time it's used to describe something that is said, and what is said is a rebuke or a warning, right? And here Jesus is silent. Jesus doesn't actually say anything. It says he is deeply moved. He's, he's feeling what is said when those things are said, but he doesn't say anything. He's silent. He is silently indignant. The question is, why is Jesus angry and indignant? And some would say he's not. It just is a way to use a word to describe the depth of the emotion that Jesus is feeling at this moment. But I, I think that it means what it means. I think it means he is angry and that he is indignant. But the question would become, why is he angry? And then there's a lot of speculation here. Some say he's angry at Mary's unbelief. The things that Mary has to say to him when she finally sees him and he finally comes to her and calls for her. Some say that he's angry at the hypocrisy of the mourners. You've got this crowd. Sometimes you actually bought mourners. It was the custom of the day that you had professional mourners because you wanted to do it right. You know, if you're going to mourn, this has got to go well. So you buy whalers. You, 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 you get people to come and help this whole grief thing go on. And so you've got this crowd of folks following Mary around, ostensibly to comfort her, but also wailing. And there is a certain amount of hypocrisy. There's a certain amount of just falseness about the scene of these folks wailing in this way. Maybe he's angry at them. Maybe he is angry at the hopeless way that they're grieving. They're standing in the presence of the one who proclaims himself to be the resurrection and the life. And they grieve as if they have no hope. Maybe it is just deep emotion. I personally think it's something entirely different. I think when, when you take all that John has poured into our understanding of Jesus. Since the beginning of John until now. And we understand who Jesus is as he stands here in this moment. I would suggest there may be something else going on inside Jesus. Personally, I think he's angry and indignant.
at death. At death, at sin, at the devil. He stands here confronted at the graveside of someone that he loved. And death is a manifestation of evil and sin in the world. It's a manifestation of a fall away from the way God had created things to be. It stands as an affront to the one who is the resurrection and the life. And he stands in the presence of death. And it is an affront to him. And it's an affront to the purposes of God for which he made the world. And for which he intends for his people from the beginning. It's offensive. Death is one of Jesus' enemies. Right in 1 Corinthians 15, it's there under your third point in the bulletin. Yeah, I've already made it to the third point. 15, 1 Corinthians 15, there in your bulletin. We're told in the resurrection chapter of Paul, a famous chapter. It's all about the resurrection written by Paul. So it's all about Jesus in one regard. And he says this, that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Right, And Jesus is God incarnate, the creator and the author of life, who made things to be a certain way. And he stands here on the graveside. And he is angry at his enemy. <laughs> the last enemy that will be defeated. But I also think he's angry at the pain and the brokenness, the suffering that is brought upon humanity by the sin and the rebellion. I think he's angry at, not at Mary and Martha and the crowd that they're weeping. He's angry at suffering. That people suffer this way. He loves, we we saw weeks ago that, that as Jesus talked to and, and responded to their call to come, two or three times in that passage we're told Jesus loved this family. Jesus loved Mary and Martha. And when the word came to him that Lazarus is dead, it came in the language of the one whom you love has died. Right? Jesus loves this family. And he stands here, literally Mary is on her feet, clinging to his legs, weeping you know, and through the tears is, is ex- expressing this confusion, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, what in the world? Help me. I don't get it. I don't get it. And I think Jesus at this moment, I mean, can you see Jesus standing here in the face of death and of broken, suffering people as a Savior? angry, not at them, he's angry, he's deeply troubled, there in your bulletin one commentator said at Gethsemane in the garden before the cross, it shows us the agony of Christ's soul for man's sin, but here at the grave in Bethany we see his agony, his agony of heart for man's suffering, here the man, the man, the human being, Jesus Christ experiences in his own soul the brokenness of the world. He's truly incarnate. When death, the last enemy, is destroyed, everything will be right. Here he stands with everything wrong, but he stands here as the one who came to make it right. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death, and it will be destroyed by him. He came for this purpose. Things will be righted. Things will be the way they are supposed to be. Revelation 21, it's there in your bulletin under the third point. It says this. This is where it's going. He says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the end of Revelation. 
This is where it's going. In other words, this is our God. This was his purpose. When he made the world, his purpose was that there should be no more tears, that there should be no death, that there should be no suffering. There should be no pain like this. There should be no weeping women crumpled in a bundle on the ground, crying her tears on your feet, pleading for an understanding of this pain. And he says the day is coming, and, the, and as we get this glimpse of revelation, that's why Jesus is here. He's going to wipe every tear, and death will be no more. He himself will destroy it. And here he stands in its brokenness. And he says, 34, where have you laid him? And when I hear, it was as if he said, where is the source of all this pain? Where have you laid him? Take me to him. Someone in the crowd answers him and says, Lord, come and see. And on the way to the grave, we're told, Jesus wept. Come and see. And Jesus follows Mary and Martha and the crowd. And as he goes, we're told he weeps. Verse 35. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Right? It's just two words. The shortest famous for being the shortest verse. I've seen it in Bible trivia games. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? What's the longest verse in the Bible? What's the longest chapter in the Bible? You know, so it's famous for being short. Jesus wept. But when Jesus weeps right here, it's a different word that was used a couple of verses before. This is not the same weeping that just went on a minute ago that, that Mary and, and the crowd is engaging in. The word that's used for Jesus here is a silent word. It was if, if we would use it to word, just say that he... He shed tears. Or he, saw, he, he cried silently. In other words, just tears started to stream down his face. It wasn't, it wasn't loud. It wasn't showy. It wasn't expressive. It was, as Jesus went, tears streamed down his face. Jesus wept. Salty human tears flowing down the face of the resurrection flowing down the face of the one who is life. Flowing down the face as he walked with the family to the graveside of one they loved desperately. Spurgeon writes concerning these two words. It's there in your bulletin under the fourth point. Spurgeon, as he contemplated these, he said, I've often felt vexed, which is a great word. I'm very vexed. I've often felt vexed at the man, whoever he was, who chopped up the New Testament into verses. He seems to have let the hatchet drop indiscriminately here and there, but I forgive him a great deal of his blundering for his wisdom in letting these two words stand by themselves. Jesus wept. The shortest of verses in words, but where is there a longer one in sense, in meaning, in implication? Those two words, he says, deserve to be alone. Don't complicate it. Don't confuse it. Don't take away from it. They deserve to be there. Jesus wept. Pregnant with meaning, with application. And at this moment, I don't believe there's any indignation. That moment is past. As he walks with the family to the grave, there's nothing but sympathy and compassion. He weeps with them. He weeps for them. The onlookers get it wrong. In verse 36, as they see Jesus weeping, 
the onlookers in the next two verses get it wrong. In verse 36, they say, so the Jews said, see how they loved him. They think he's crying because Lazarus is dead. I don't believe Jesus is crying for Lazarus or over his death. I think that's wrong. I think it's not grief over the loss of a friend. In fact, he's literally on his way to raise him from the dead. Right? He's about to call him forth to new life. Like He, above all people, knows that this is about to be an amazing situation. This is not something where I think bring, would bring Jesus to tears. I believe he, Jesus weeps with Martha and Mary. As he goes to the grave, they are still in the midst of their grief. He has encountered them and he walks with them. And I think this is one of the things that we need to understand in the scripture. As high as we exalt Jesus as the Lord, as King, as the resurrection, as the life, as the way and the truth and the life, as the, as the one who is the light of the world and the bread of life, and as we lift him up in all of his glory, we need to understand that this one is one who walks with us. And cries with us as we grieve in the midst of this valley of tears, as the Puritans would call this life, is a valley of tears, a veil of tears. It leads that way for all of us. There's a way of all flesh. It doesn't end well for any of us in terms of this life. And Jesus is one who walks with us. In a very real sense, he feels our pain. Right, I say that to people sometimes, and, I, and I, I mean it. You know, if I've been there and done that, if I've had that experience, I'll sometimes look at you and say, I feel your pain. You know, I'm trying, what am I trying to tell you? Like, I get it. I, I understand it. I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't judge your pain. I don't criticize your pain. I don't stand outside coldly looking on, like, what's up with you? I, I feel your pain. I, I get it. I understand it from the inside. I, I understand it. And I believe that's what Jesus is doing at this moment. Jesus is getting it. He cares about them. He loves them. And he enters into their experience. And, and, and so he cries with them. So I don't think they get it right. I don't think it was how he, they love Lazarus as much as how he loves those who are left behind in pain. I think he's weeping with the girls, with the sisters. In verse 37, the next group gets it wrong. And they say, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Right? They think he weeps in the face of death because he's powerless to do anything about it. Couldn't this guy who's done other things, I guess he couldn't fix this one. He couldn't, you know, he, he could do a lot of things, but apparently not this one. And he weeps in the face of his powerlessness over an enemy that is stronger than he is. And this enemy is not stronger than he is. He has not lost this battle. He has only yet begun to fight. We get a glimpse of our Savior is what we get. And they don't understand it. The full range of his glory. A Jesus who can raise the dead, but who could also walk with weeping sisters and cry with them and love them. A Jesus who is a real man. And yes, real men cry. It's hard to hold these two things together in the person of Jesus. Because we tend to lift him so high up, it's hard to imagine when we suffer that he's with us or that he gets it. But John's premise from the start, from John chapter 1, verse 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And before he finishes the chapter, he says, the Word became flesh. Right? That's the whole point that John is bringing in. There is this Word who was in the beginning and with God, and he became flesh, and he dwelt among us. In the rest of the book, we see these two things coming out in their fullness and their reality. But he not only dwelt among us, he really was one of us. As Isaiah 53 paints a picture of the sufferings of Christ and the work of the Messiah, there he paints a picture of a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, who is a man and experiences what we experience. Every emotion, every pain that you feel, that you experience. And he does it in such a way that he's without sin. He grieves, but not without hope. He gets angry, but in his anger he does not sin. He is tempted in all ways like as we are, but he does not fall before it. He is victorious. He lives the life that we fail to live every day. And he does it right. His hunger and thirst are evidence that he's really a human being. But his tears, right, his tears reach out to us. His tears come alongside of us. His tears stream down his face like they do ours. And it speaks to us of the heart of God. It speaks to us of the love of our Savior. It brings God closer to us. Because Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And here he is weeping. Isaiah 57 is there in your bulletin under the last point. In Isaiah 57 we read one of my great verses I committed to memory many years ago. I commend it to you. It says, this is, thus says the one who is high and lifted up and who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. You know, I read that and I think of Jesus. Here's Jesus, you know, I, I, the resurrection and the life, who is the bread of life and the water of life and the one who is the light of the world and the one who strides upon the water and heals the lame and the sick. I am this Lord. King of kings. And I dwell, he says, in a high and holy place. But then he says, but also, I live in another place. I dwell somewhere else. I live in two places. One, high and holy. One, lifted up. One, beyond your reach. But the other one is with you. If you are contrite, he says, right? But I also live with one who is contrite and lowly of spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. What an amazing statement. That the heart of our God. The kind of God we are. The theologians talk about, you know, this is a classic verse of transcendence and imminence. You know, our God is transcendent. He stands outside of creation. He spoke the creation into existence. He's not part of it. The creation is not Him. has no power over Him. It's not a rival to Him. He stands outside of it. He stands over it. He speaks it into existence. And He sits on His throne, reigning over the circle of the earth. He speaks things into existence. And He speaks them out of existence. He judges them and holds them accountable. And He is the Lord. And He is transcendent. And yet the Bible brings this God in incredible ways to say this God, in what he has made, he has made us in his own image. And he made us in his image for a reason. So that we could know him. And he could know us in, in a way that, that changes everything. That we could know him and that we can love him. That we could understand him. That we could communicate and c commune with him. Have a relationship with him. 
This God who is high and lifted up, he also dwells with the contrite, the lowly. He comes near. The Almighty comes near. What does he come near to do? As far as I can tell, to care for his people. To meet our needs. To make us his own, right? To care for people, to forgive us our sins, to save us from their penalty, to revive us uh, as it is here, and to come alongside and weep with us until that day when every tear is wiped away and there'll be no more crying and no more death and no more of any of that stuff. He walks with us. He understands. He feels your pain. He walks with you in that pain. He weeps with you in that pain. He says, the scripture says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands our frame. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We have one who in every respect is tempted as we are and yet is without sin. Did you know pain is one of our temptations? It's one of our temptations. It's not just something that we feel and suffer. It's a temptation, right? Isn't when, when you feel pain, when you are in pain, I said pain does funny things. When we're in pain, we are tempted to think God doesn't care, right? I'm tempted to think God is out to get me. Or I'm tempted to think I'm alone. Where is he? Or I'm tempted, I'm tempted to, to doubt and to fear and to weep as those who have no hope. Pain is a great moment of temptation. Do you weep? You are not alone. Right? Scripture is so clear. You are not alone. Right? He weeps with you. He walks with you. He has wept before us. And he still wears his flesh. He has been raised from the dead. He still wears his flesh. And I believe there are still salty tears on the face of our Savior. He came to share and to destroy. To share our experience of suffering and weeping and death so that he could come ultimately to destroy it. Right, 1 John 3, 8 right there, he says the reason that the Son of God appeared, the reason that Jesus took on flesh, the reason that Jesus walked around Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the reason the Son of God did what he did was to destroy the works of the devil. That's where this is going. The day is coming when he will wipe every tear. And so 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I read it at every funeral that I do. Thursday is we buried Francis Ladd. You know, we read these verses. We remember the promises of God. We, we gather at a funeral to say our goodbyes. We, we gather to, uh, to remember and to celebrate the life. We gather... But I think at the top of the list, the main reason we're here, the main reason we are gathered as a people at that moment is to remember and to celebrate the promises of God. And therefore, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve in the face of death. We do. Jesus did. Right? When who, whoever needs to be ashamed of their tears again. There's no shame in, in, in the pain that this life brings and the, and the true emotion that it, 
that it, that it pulls out of us. We grieve. We grieve in the face of death. We, we grieve at the parting that we experience. We grieve at the hole that's left in our lives. And so we grieve for ourselves. But we do not weep for those who stand in the presence of God. Right? We do not weep for those who stand face to face with Jesus. We do not weep for those who are now experienced the fulfillment of every promise that God has given the tears of Jesus are no small part of His glory. They are no small part of His love. And they are a great part of what makes me love Him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, You who wept beside the grave of one You loved. You who wept with a grieving family. You who know what the taste of our tears is like. You who have walked in our shoes. You feel our pain. Forgive us for doubting it. Forgive us for not trusting you. Forgive us for not understanding what it means that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, who is near to us in our suffering, and who ultimately will go to the cross to destroy even that last enemy, death. And whose goal and purpose in all of these things is that one day things will be made right. Things will be as they should be. That you will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. No more pain. No more sorrow. Father, teach us not to grieve like those who have no hope. Give us the hope of the resurrection. Give us the knowledge and the power of a risen Christ. That we might be full of the resurrection and the life even now, for your glory and for our good, we ask and pray. Amen. I would ask you to stand and sing as we close. What better is there to do than to all hail the power of Jesus' name? Amen.